The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host this week. I'm so happy to be speaking with Dr. Adam Milam. He is a fellow anesthesiologist. He is wrapping up a cardiothoracic anesthesiology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. And before that, he finished his residency in anesthesiology at Cedars-Sinai. Dr. Milam, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to join. (laughs) Man, I'm excited to hear your story because you have been everywhere. You've done a bit of everything. So why don't you start at the beginning and let us know, when did you decide to go into medicine? So it was right before high school. I really enjoyed science and I knew I wanted to to do medicine. Uh, my road wasn't a, a straight a straight road to medicine, but I think, you know, back before high school, I knew I definitely wanted to pursue medicine. Yeah. So so after high school, where'd you go to, to college? So I went to college at Johns Hopkins. So literally less than a mile from my high school, I could see the Hopkins campus from my high school. So I ended up going to Hopkins and strangely enough, started out doing chemical and biomolecular engineering. So I thought I was going to be an engineer, develop medical equipment, and then go into medicine a little bit later. Really didn't uh, enjoy engineering at all. I did four semesters of it, realized it wasn't for me, then switched to chemistry and then landed in public health. And I finished at Hopkins with a degree in public health. So you're, you're Baltimore, born and raised. Born and raised, went to public schools, Baltimore City Public Schools, City College, which got a shout out as the third oldest public high school in the country. And, and then, yeah, went to Hopkins afterwards and, and spent eight years at Hopkins. Eight years at Hopkins. So what were you doing at, at Hopkins? You you did undergrad and then you stayed on for a master's? Yeah, so I was I was there for my public health degree. I did the undergrad public health degree. I had applied to medical school traditionally the summer between junior and senior year, just like everyone else, was accepted but deferred for a year to do my master's at the School of Public Health. And I did my master's, you know, halfway through my master's, they suggested that I apply for the PhD program, which I wasn't considering. It wasn't on my radar at all. I was planning on going to medical school, but applied to the PhD program, was accepted, and they attached funding to it. So it was pretty hard to turn that down. Mm. So I decided not to go to medical school and uh, complete the PhD uh, at Hopkins, which which I did. And I think it was a, it was a great experience for me. I think uh, altered my career trajectory. So going back to when you started that public health degree, what led you in that direction? A lot of people will kind of do other degrees to get into medical school. You had the option to go to medical school, but you chose to do the public health. Absolutely. I I took a class, a community health class. And and the good aspect about the class is you were paired with the organization within Baltimore. And so I worked with an organization called Project Health that help address some of the psychosocial issues that patients go through that aren't addressed at the hospital. So things like housing and food insecurity, and also started doing some public health research at the same time. And so this is a whole new field for me. I knew nothing about you know, public health per se before I, I, I started that major. So given all the problems in Baltimore, and a lot of, a lot of them fall under public health, that was my way of giving back and learning more about ways to fix some of the you know major problems in, in Baltimore. So it was a good de- degree for me to, to learn more about my city and learn more how I could address some of those 
those issues that were plaguing the city. Man, kept it close to home. Yes. And then as you were finishing that up, they started talking about this PhD. So what did you get your PhD in and how did they kind of convince you or, or what was the, the carrot that led you into the PhD versus medical school? So I was accepted into an NIH T32 training grant. And so what that is, that'll pay for your tuition, help support, you know, things like equipment, conference travel, and you also get a monthly stipend. And so I did the PhD in the Department of Mental Health at the School of Public Health and attached to a NIH training grant through the, uh, it was a child mental health services training grant. Hmm. And so fully funded. And so, like I said, it's hard to turn down free money to do a, a PhD at the, you know, number one school of public health in the world. So yeah. I, I decided to do that instead of going uh, straight to medical school. I know these uh, different grants have these crazy numbers, these K's and, and T's. And so a T32 grant, how do you get that? How do you sign up for it or apply? What was that process? So for the T32 and also for a postdoctoral training grant award, the institution actually applies for it and they have a certain number of slots. And so they can award it to uh, trainees uh, that they see fit. And so it's an institutional grant. Trainee uh, trying to fund their their PhD work, but you you're it's essentially funded through the NIH, but the institution actually applies for it. So, how long did it take you to complete the requirements for the PhD? So, given that I t- took all my classes and all my degrees were at the same institution, when I was you know completing my undergrad degree, I started taking some of my master's level classes. And same thing, when I was in my master's degree, I started taking some of my PhD program <laughs> classes. <laughs> so I finished the uh, P- the master's degree in one year, and then my PhD I finished in two and a half years. So I finished the PhD program March of 2012, and I had finished you know, my uh, bachelor's degree in you know, May of tw- uh, 2008. So a little under four years for the master's and PhD program. Wow. And then at that point, you'd already had an acceptance to medical school? Yeah. So before I defended my dissertation, I reapplied to medical school, got accepted to medical school, and then deferred for another year to complete my PhD program. So I defended my dissertation March of 2012, graduated May of 2012, and then started medical school July of 2012. Um, So I went right through uh, and went to medical school at Wayne State in Detroit. Gotcha. Gotcha. Man, yeah, you're getting after it. So how was the the experience in medical school? You got out of your beloved Baltimore. You saw some different stuff. Yes. How was Michigan, the transition there? It was, it was a big transition uh, just from the PhD program to, to medical school and then a, a totally different city. Uh, like you mentioned, I had been in Baltimore all my life. And so now I'm 26, starting at a new institution in a new city. Uh, but Detroit was, it was an amazing experience. For me, it reminded me a lot of Baltimore, some of the same public health problems, roughly the same demographics. Detroit is about 80% African-American. Baltimore is about 60%. So you had that same type of feel in, in Detroit. Uh, but it was, it was a good experience. I enjoyed my time at Wayne State. I really got a good clinical experience. And my classmates were amazing and made the you know, experience even better. Awesome. And at some point you realized that anesthesiology was the field for you. So what drew you into this specialty? Yeah. So I knew I wanted to be in the operating room. 
So I was actually considering surgery during my third year of medical school. I actually did an extra month of surgery uh, back in Baltimore at Sinai Hospital in addition to my uh, two-month block of surgery. Really enjoyed it and really thought I was going to apply for surgery because of the procedures. Uh, like I said, I, I love being in the operating room. But the personality wasn't a good fit for me and realized that anesthesia, I could still be in the operating room, do a lot of procedures, and it, it felt right. Uh, the the atmosphere was more conducive to, to how I operate. And so ended up applying to anesthesiology, did some anesthesia research my fourth year of medical school, uh, and then transitioned to uh, Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles for residency. So when you, when you, man, you're making your way uh, west across the country, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How was that transition to L.A.? Yeah, so I never considered myself, you know, living on the West Coast. I always thought I would, you know, always be in like the Northeast. But L.A. was uh, everything that you see on TV, everything that you hear. The weather was amazing, which is a, a big part. So got to do a lot outside the hospital, which I think... I helped out with, with residency, with all the stresses with residency. So I got to bike a lot, hike a lot, and I was at an amazing hospital. So Cedars-Sinai is located right in Beverly Hills. It's the hospital for the stars. So it's a very fancy hospital. You have every kind of resource that you could imagine. And it was a small residency program. So when I started, there were only eight residents. Hmm. Uh, it was five fellows for, you know, cardiac four for regional. So it was a small like mom and pop program and you were one-to-one with your attendings, uh, which is pretty unheard of for uh, a residency program. So you got a lot of attention uh, with the program. And like I said, it was, I learned a lot and it was clinically heavy, heavy. So got to do every type of case that you could imagine. Yeah. And, and thinking back, what stuck out to you? What specialties did you really uh, enjoy the most? So for me, it was uh, critical care and cardiac. Cedars does a lot of cardiac cases, and you spend most of your time in the uh, cardiac surgery ICU. And so, um, my first case was a uh, my first cardiac case was a lung transplant. What? Uh, there was all yeah, <laughs> it was an off pump lung <laughs> transplant. And at the beginning of the case, the uh, CT surgeon said this is going to be like a mini cold throughout the entire case. And that it was. And so the excitement from that that one case had me consider uh, cardiac or uh-huh. fellowship. But I was still thinking about critical care because I just enjoyed being in the ICU. You got to follow, follow up with your patients. I uh, got to, you know, practice a little bit more medicine than uh, just being in the operating room. Uh, but ultimately, I decided on on cardiac just because I love being in the operating room, and I knew that I wanted to do research uh, when I started practicing. And it would be hard to split my time between the OR, you know, the ICU, and, and doing research. Yeah. So you you finished anesthesiology residency. You ended up going to the Cleveland Clinic for your CT anesthesiology fellowship, which you're wrapping up. Uh, as we record this episode, how was that one-year experience? Can you explain what um, cardiothoracic anesthesia is for our listeners? Definitely. So for CT anesthesia, cardiothoracic anesthesia, you focus on the cardiac and thoracic cases, and you really focus on learning transesophageal echo that year. 
And so you get familiar with the echo probe and interpreting images uh, and using that to uh, guide treatment for the, the cardiac surgeon. And so we handle the heart transplants, device management, thoracic cases where you remove the, the lung, do lobectomies or lung transplants. And so it, it's a busy year. So Cleveland Clinic is the busiest cardiac center in the country. Um, and so you, you definitely put in a lot of work. And I, I tell some of my mentees that first month of fellowship, I felt like an intern all over <laughs> again. <laughs> I was at a new hospital, a new system, and they just do everything a little bit differently. And, you know, they call it the, the, the clinic way. Everything is different. Like, uh, you know, traditionally you place central lines at the head of the bed. They place central lines from the left of the patient. So that, that, you know, someone can start doing the echo. So it's certain things that you have to get used to that, you know, I had been accustomed to doing certain things uh, from residency. So that first month of fellowship was was pretty challenging, just learning the new ways and, and getting used to a new system. But this year, I've learned a lot. The cases that you see there, you'll you'll never see anywhere else. And I think that'll prepare me well for, for my next adventure. Um, we've had, you know, five-time redo, so Jeez. you know, a patient's fifth sternotomy. Oh, um, man. So, yeah, patients that no one else would operate on. So it's it, it's been a, a great learning experience for me. And can you break down the year, because you rotated kind of through different services. I know you did mostly cardiac, but what other specialties did you do? So for the fellowship here, we just, how they break the rotations down is just based on different pathology or the different surgeries. So you do a rotation on aortic valve or a rotation on aorta where, you know, you're dealing with aortic dissections or aortic aneurysms. You do a rotation on mitral valve, uh, which is, you know, a pretty common surgery and they're doing a lot of robotic cases now where you also do some regional blocks with regional anesthesia. Hmm. And then you also do a critical care month spending time, you know, managing the patients after they leave the operating room. Uh, we spent, you know, two weeks with the perfusionist learning the bypass machine and everything they do uh, while the patient's on bypass. But mainly you're in the, the operating room for about 10 months. And then, the you know, those other rotations outside of the OR, ICU wow. and bypass. Yeah, sounds like a, an incredible program, but a very, very busy year. Definitely a busy year. I think I'm working a little bit more than residency, but uh, like I said, I, I've seen just about everything that you that you could want to see in a, a cardiac fellowship. Yeah. So your ideal job, if you had to put it all together, because I know you're you're close to uh, letting everybody know where you're going to go to work, but ideally, how would you manage between anesthesia, cardiac anesthesia, your research? What does that look like for you? Sure. So it, that, that was a, a big consideration when I was started to apply for jobs. How much research do I want to do and how much clinical time? And for me, all my research up until now has been done on my spare time. And so uh, going in, I'm probably, go, probably going to do 90% clinical and about 10% research just to start off. And ideally, I would still do big cases for all of that clinical time. And so my plan is to do 50% cardiac, 50% uh, liver transplant, uh, mm. and then do my do my research. 
Uh, as I get more comfortable clinically, uh, being on my own as an attending, I'll start to carve out some some more research time and apply for some external funding. Oh man, we gotta talk to talk about work life balance. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> you said you did this research in your spare time. Yeah, so uh, throughout residency and fellowship, I would do research, you know, on post call days, uh, vacation time. Uh, and any downtime when I was in the hospital, like if it was a, a light call shift, you know, I would do research. So I always have my iPad with me. I always have a folder with a stack of articles that I need to read or review or edit. So it's it's always happening. And yeah, it's not a good uh, work-life balance at this time. <laughs> well, let, let, let me break it down for, for the, the folks listening in. In Dr. Milam's part-time research. He's published over 70 peer-reviewed publications, more than 75 national and international presentations, multiple media features, multiple awards. So not not bad for part-time. <laughs> yeah, it's, been, it's been a busy, busy time. Man. And, and in addition to all of your medical training, you retained a part-time faculty appointment at the John Hopkins School of Sorry, let me say it correctly. The Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Yes. Um, so I always call myself a Hopkins kid. So like I said, I spent eight years there for a school. And then when I finished my PhD program, I got an appointment later that year within the Department of Mental Health. And I've worked with them, you know, since 2012. So now, you know, almost a decade uh, on the faculty after finishing my, my training. And so I still collaborate with a lot of folks at, at Hopkins and a lot of folks uh, in Baltimore just because of the research that we started when I was in, you know, doing my master's program. A lot of that research has continued. And so I work with a lot of the grad students, the PhD students, and, and a lot of the uh, existing grants for people at Hopkins. Jeez. So if you can remember this far back, when did you publish your first paper? I definitely remember that. My first paper was published in 2010. And uh, really enough, it was a paper that I had to write for a class just as like a final paper. And my mentor always says, it's no point of writing for no reason. Write the paper, submit it for your class, and then submit it for publication. And I did just that. Uh, so after the class ended, I submitted that for publication, and that was my first publication, and that was in uh, 2010. Wow. And if you can pick, this is like choose between kids, what one or two or three papers would you say is your favorite that you've uh, had published? Sure. So that was my first paper, I would say, was one of my favorites. And so it looked at perceived safety and academic achievement among elementary uh, school students. So it looked at violence within their neighborhoods and then subsequent test scores. And so that was my first paper, a paper that I just recently published that I thought was uh, pretty good. It was published in the American Journal of Public Health. It looked at misclassification of opioid overdose deaths. And so with the opioid epidemic, you know, overdo overdose deaths have been steadily increasing. Uh, since about 1999. And so the states classify the opioid overdose deaths, and that has a lot of implications for funding for 
prevention and research. And uh, over a 10-year span, they were misclassifying opioid overdose deaths for African Americans. And so the misclassification was almost double among African Americans for about 10 years. And uh, it's a field where they call this health data disparities. And so we know that, you know, there's a lot of health disparities throughout medicine. And so this is, you know, goes even further where even in death, there are disparities that continue to exist that have implications for, for prevention and intervention. And so we identified that health data disparity and opioid overdose classification. And so that was just recently published and followed up a, another opioid paper that we did to show that African-Americans are now outpacing whites and opioid overdose deaths. And we, we think that it has something to do with prevention efforts in African-American communities. Wow. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, and I think one of the incredible things about you, Adam, is that you seek to lift as you climb and you're available to help other people that are trying to do research. We collaborated on a paper. By collaboration, I mean you wrote the paper. I think I wrote a sentence or two. Um, we had that published last year about John Henryanism in medicine, but I uh, can't tell you how much I appreciate someone of your caliber helping me start to write. I tell everyone that I had a great mentor that assisted me throughout this process, and she still mentors me to this day. And she started when I was a public health major in college. And now, you know, nearly 15 years later, we still collaborate. And so seeing how impactful that relationship was for me, I have no choice but to, to pay it forward and bring other people into research. And I think it's an important avenue to, to create change. And so I try to collaborate with as many people as possible with my research and then mentoring uh, in the cl for clinical as well. Yeah. And, and along the same line, so how does one break into this medical writing and the research? Where would you suggest they start? I think just reaching out when you're a resident or even a medical student to get on pre-existing projects, I think that's the easiest uh, option. So there's so many projects going on within every different specialty. And so it's pretty easy to email an attending or a resident and figure out what kind of research they, they're doing and see if you can collaborate. So medical students that have worked with me have been great at doing literature reviews. Um, and then I'll go through the writing an introduction with them go through the steps of analyzing and then preparing the paper for, for submission. And so I have, you know, two or three papers under review now, and I have a medical student on each paper. I have other papers with residents. And so it's, it's a difficult process to, to enter writing because you just don't know the expectations um, for the journals. And a lot of people just aren't introduced to research in medical school. And so you really have to rely on uh, other residents who are doing research or mentors to, to bring you into the fold. And I'm sure they're appreciative of uh, the, the investment that you're making into their lives and their careers. And like I said, I, I have no choice but to pay it forward because so many people have helped me and given me opportunities to work on uh, projects, collaborate on projects and to, to write manuscripts. And as you go forward in your career, where do you think you're going to continue to focus your research efforts? 
So my, my goal is to focus on health disparities, and I think that'll bridge my public health and, and medicine. And so within our field of anesthesiology, not many people have looked at health disparities and how our management may contribute to health disparities. A lot of things are done in the operating room that dictate a patient's outcome and their course uh, outside the outside the operating room. And so I want to look at uh, factors and, and things that happen in the operating room and how that might contribute to to some of the differences in mortality and hospital length of stay uh, for patients. There's a big disparity uh, in African-Americans and whites for outcomes after cardiac surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's higher mortality among African-American patients. Uh, there's a longer length of stay uh, within a hospital. More people have, uh, you know, just more morbidity after cardiac, more African-Americans have, you know, greater morbidity after cardiac surgery. And so I want to look at what can we do within the hospital to uh, affect some of these outcomes. We know, you know, the, the social determinants of health and people were handling that at a, a global level. But the low hanging fruit, what can I do in the hospital to, to change some of these outcomes? It's awesome. I'll definitely be uh, staying tuned to see what you find. I'll I'll work to, uh, you know, if you take me under your wing, we, we can work together and maybe collaborate on some of these uh, issues. Definitely. Awesome. Well, um, Adam, I know in addition to all the stuff that you do, you do have a fair amount of work-life balance because you, you do travel, get home to Baltimore frequently, and you're always working out. Um, is that, that that's your stress reliever? Yeah, definitely a, a stress reliever. So I work out in the morning. Um, when I was doing my PhD program, I was close to 300 pounds. And so uh, at the end of my PhD program, I said I would lose some weight before I started medical school. I was like, I need to, you know, maintain a healthy lifestyle if I'm going to be a physician, you know, encouraging my patients to to live a healthy lifestyle. And so the transition from my PhD program to medical school, I lost about 60 pounds in in two months and then have been, you know, losing weight each year since then. And so to to keep that, I, I work out in the mornings before work. So up at around 340 mm. in the gym at 4 a.m. every morning. Uh, uh, right before work. And that's helped out a lot with uh, staying sane with a residency and fellowship. Yeah, I bet. And I see the videos you post. And honestly, it for sure is a encouragement to see that you are able to keep everything and do it all. The workouts are consistent, your research, your clinical activities, definitely inspiring. And traveling is my other uh, activity that I love to do and to help take my mind off of medicine and research and take a little break. So Dr. Milan, what would you say to medical students or pre-med students that are considering a career in anesthesiology? I would say be the best clinician you can be during third year. A lot of people will go into third year of medical school, you know, focused on one specialty. And I think you should just explore everything and do well in all those different specialties. And then fourth year, you know, focus on uh, the specialty that you're, you're most interested in. I think anesthesiology, we touch on every different specialty. So you need to know, you know, what happens with in your general surgery rotation, what happens in internal medicine, what happens in pediatrics, because you're going to bring all of that together for your, you know, anesthesiology residency. Um, and you can get letters from each one of those specialties for anesthesia. I think that's pretty unique with our field that we'll take letters from 
any specialty because we really need a well-rounded physician uh, for, for what we're doing. So I would say, you know, focus clinically your third year on each rotation and do well in each rotation and, and you'll be set. Yeah. And we touched earlier on doing research. I know as applications are always getting more competitive, uh, changes to step one and other stuff, research is becoming more and more of a thing that programs are looking at. Where would you recommend a medical student uh, start with their research and, and how many papers, if you had to just put a number on it in terms of matching, what would you, what would be your, rec- your recommendations? Yeah, that's a good point that it is coming, uh, becoming more competitive. And so I think medical students are really, uh, should seek out case reports. They're pretty easy to get published. So if you see an interesting case, you can email the attending that you're with and say, Hey, can I write this up? And it's usually, you know, a couple thousand words, pretty quick turnover time. I would say one to two publications for a medical student applying a residency will make them competitive. But the, you know, when your program director interviews you and, you know, discusses this case report with you, they want you to know about the case report, make sure that you had a hand in writing it and, and know about the case or the manuscript. So it's important to really get involved in the research that you're doing so you can talk about it uh, in your interview process. But I think one or two papers and or presentations at national conferences will make you competitive for uh, residency applications. Good, good. That's that's very helpful. Uh, Dr. Marlon, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I know our listeners are going to be super thrilled and, and learn a lot from this episode. Where can they go to find out more about you, to find out what you're up to, and to, and to follow your progress? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram. My handle is AJMilam, M-I-L-A-M, M-D, Ph-D. Same thing for Twitter. Um, and then my website is AJMilam.com. You can just Google this guy because about 75 papers are going to pop up with his name on them. <laughs> Oh, man, Dr. Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Let me pick your brain. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, 